You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. The most popular podcast ever on the BMJ was a competent novice looking at how to deal with sudden death. This week we have the star of that podcast back to tell you how to deal with the admission of an acutely ill patient. Where those authors pointed out that patients who came into the intensive care from the ward environment had often received suboptimal care. And that, um, that really hasn't, I'm sad to say, changed very much over the ensuing decade or so. But before that, mutations in the BRCA genes increase your risk of cancer. Exposure to ionising radiation, including from medical imaging, such as x-rays and CT scans, also increases your risk. Earlier this week, I talked to Anouk Piper, an epidemiologist from the Netherlands Cancer Institute, who's been looking at where these two risk factors meet. Anouk, you aren't the first people to be concerned that excess radiation is affecting women with BRCA mutations. So what research is out there already? Well, so far, uh, only a couple of studies have been conducted, and their findings uh, were inconsistent. Uh, Two studies have looked at uh, conventional radiographs to the chest, so Mm. chest X-rays, and they observed an increased risk of breast cancer after exposure, especially after exposure before age 20. And two other studies investigated exposure from mammographic screening, and they both observed no association with breast cancer risk in these women. Now, you've set out to look a bit more widely. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about the population that you were looking at um, in your study? Well, the GeneWide Risk Study was a three-country effort from France, the Netherlands, and the UK. And we studied almost 2,000 women who carry a mutation in one of the breast cancer genes. Mm -hmm. And our study is unique in the sense that it is actually the first study among mutation carriers to have collected complete information on all types of diagnostic radiation procedures. Um, Yes, and you did that to look at things like fluoroscopy and uh, mammographies. So how did you collect the information on um, past sort of exposure? Well, the ultimate aim was to calculate one combined measure to be able to investigate the association between total diagnostic radiation dose and breast cancer risk in these women. Mm-hmm. So first we asked women to report whether they uh, had ever been exposed to ionizing radiation on the chest or, or shoulders, how many times and at which age. And these diagnostic radiation procedures included fluoroscopies, chest x-rays, mammograms, uh, CT scans, and also some other types of uh, diagnostic procedures like bone scans. Mm -hmm. And with this information for each individual, uh, we calculated an cumulative breast dose, which was based on nominal estimates of organ dose and frequency of the self-reported procedures. Okay. Now, how good do you think the data there was for the self-reporting? Were you able to validate it in any way? We conducted previously uh, two methodological studies in the Dutch cohort. Uh, One was a test-retest reliability study, and the other was a validation study of uh, self-reported mammograms. And actually, both studies indicated that there was misclassification of exposure, but it was not uh, differential by disease status. So it was not different among carriers who had had breast cancer and among carriers who were unaffected. So this indicates actually that it's unlikely that recall bias is a problem in our study. Okay. 
So then, once you uh, crunched your data, what association came out about uh, exposure and increased risk of developing cancer? Well, our, our study showed that uh, BRCA1 and 2 mutation carriers have a one and a half to almost twofold increased risk of breast cancer when exposed to one or more diagnostic radiation procedures compared to carriers who were not exposed. And the increased risk of breast cancer we observed was for uh, diagnostic radiation procedures received before the age of 30 and not for procedures later on in life. And did it change with uh, types of exposure? Does the imaging modality make a difference to the outcome? We analyzed the specific procedures separately also, but the problem with doing that procedure-specific analysis is that the group who you claim to be not exposed might have other procedures. So that's the main reason why we calculated one combined measure, so we have an actual non-exposed reference group. Okay. But, for example, of course, I can understand that uh, the mammographies are a concern in this, uh, in this group. Uh, so, of course, we looked at that. And for mammographies before age 30, we, we did observe an increased risk of breast cancer, but it was not statistically significant. Okay. Now, um, as you said before, that there have been studies looking at this, um, and in your paper you say that they were flawed as um, survival biases came into play. So how well do you think in your study you were able to you know, account for those potential confounders? Well, indeed, survival bias and recall bias are important to consider when conducting retrospective studies such as ours. And regarding the survival bias, we know that in all retrospective cohort studies using questionnaire data, cases who survived until the questionnaire completion could only fill out the questionnaire because they survived. Mm. So to correct for potential survival bias arising from the exclusion of uh, exposed cases who died from breast cancer long before questionnaire completion, our main analysis were actually performed on carriers who were diagnosed or censored within five years prior to questionnaire completion. So our main analysis was conducted among relatively recent cases for that reason. Okay, so you're fairly confident that uh, this increased risk is actual? Yes, how how large the risk increase actually is, it's difficult to say. It, it's still a retrospective study. So, uh, and in some subgroups, we had small number of cases. So the results of our study indicate that there is an increased risk, uh, but how large it actually is um, needs to be investigated further. Okay. So um, what conclusions have you drawn for this? What do you think this means for radiological screening of women who carry the uh, BRCA mutations? Well, regarding the breast cancer screening, which is, of course, the first and foremost concern in these women, in some countries, like in the Netherlands, the UK, and in France, uh, the screening guidelines for these women already recommend avoiding mammographic screening before age 30 and to use MRI as a main tool for surveillance at younger ages. But in other countries, this is not always the case. So based on our results, we would advise to implement a similar guideline in the other countries. Mm. And regarding the other types of diagnostic procedures using ionizing radiation, doctors may want to consider being cautious with the use of other diagnostic procedures using x-rays among young BRCA1 and 2 mutation carriers if alternatives are at hand. Okay. What I want to emphasize is 
that national breast cancer screening programs are proven to be effective for women from the general population and for older mutation carriers. So our advice to all women is please continue to go for your breast cancer screening as usual, regardless of whether you are scheduled for a mammography or an MRI. Mm. Except if you're a mutation carrier younger than 30 and you are scheduled to go for mammographic screening, then you may want to ask your physician to plan an MRI instead. Okay. Quite a, a simple message there. Then. Yes. And Luke Piper from the Netherlands Cancer Institute there. And that paper is now available online on bmj.com. Now, Mabel Chu gets the lowdown on dealing with acutely ill admissions. Now, it's become clear that poor outcomes for patients in normal hospital wards often come about due to failure to recognise the acutely ill patient, um, the patient who is not too unwell when they're admitted but then deteriorates rather suddenly. Um, the UK's National Confidential Inquiry into Patient Outcomes and Death identified some of these issues and recently the Royal College of Physicians has launched a national early warning score for use in hospitals. Um, so this has become quite a, a topical issue in the UK. I have with me in the studio Dr Paul Frost, who's a consultant in intensive care medicine at the University Hospital of Wales, and he's written an article for the BMJ on early management of the acutely ill patient. Paul, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Uh, good afternoon. Paul, why do you think recognising the acutely deteriorating or acutely ill patient is, is so difficult? Well, I think there are a number of things that we need to consider here. Um, first of all, this is not a new problem. And you probably remember the seminal paper that was published in the BMJ back in 1998 by Peter McQuillan and colleagues, where those authors pointed out that patients who came into the intensive care from the ward environment had often received suboptimal care. And that, um, that really hasn't, I'm sad to say, changed very much over the ensuing decade or so. And the same themes were picked up again by NCPOD, as you mentioned, back in 2005. And I think there are a number of things that we need to consider. I think, firstly, training around recognition and managing critically ill patients is, is not consistent and is probably deficient, um, at least in the UK. Um, and that's both at undergraduate and postgraduate level. But I think there are, there's far more to it than that. I think we've had European working time directives which have, by and large, diluted the experience of, uh, of trainee doctors. We have other issues, traditionally in Britain. Um, consultant input, particularly after hours, is, is often uh, found to be wanting. Um, and also we have really uh, organizational issues, uh, such as a consistent and standardized mechanism to intercept these patients in a timely fashion. And, and as you mentioned, the, the Royal College of Physicians has, has recently um, produced a standardized national early warning score patient observation chart to try and uh, mitigate this problem. So there's no doubt there are lots of factors at play here, and, and there's certainly no denying junior doctors are at the front line here. And as you say, training is very important and, and could be better, but there is certainly no substitute for on-the-job experience. Um, your article tries to help junior doctors 
uh, in this role? And we, I wonder if you might take us through step by step what the process should be. Well, the, the very first um, thing that will happen to a junior doctor is they'll be alerted to a potentially critically ill or acutely ill war patient. And I think the very first thing the junior doctor needs to do is to attend the bedside as quickly as possible. Uh, anecdotally, and something that I've observed o- over many years, is that often juniors wishing to acquaint themselves with the detail of the history will spend an inordinate amount of time out of sight of the patient, uh, reading the patient notes, looking at investigations. And, and of course, that introduces unnecessary uh, delay in delivering what can be life-saving therapy. You need to take the nurse to the bedside because that person will have some initial history, uh, which, of course, you can supplement with quick review of the medical notes. So step one, proceed to the bedside as quickly as possible. Then just take a moment to take in the general appearance of the patient. And a rather good way of starting your assessment is with a handshake. Um, The reason I say that is because these patients are often uh, frightened. Uh, They're seriously concerned. They they may believe with good reason that they're actually dying. Uh, And offering a handshake and introducing yourself as a doctor or someone who's there to help them is a very positive step in establishing a rapport and reassuring the patient. But also, of course, it gives you lots of clinical information. The best way to to start your assessment is with the oft-quoted A, B, C, D, E type approach. That is an assessment of airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and then reminding yourself to properly expose and examine the patient. And actually, most of that assessment can be accomplished within moments of arriving at the bedside by simple observation. Now... We're all familiar with that ABCDE approach, but uh, clearly that's not the end of the story. What else should the junior doctor be thinking of, either at the same time or after doing the ABCDE steps? Absolutely, and I think that's a very important point. I think often it's perceived that uh, ABCDE is an end of itself in managing acutely ill patients, but of course. It's merely a way of keeping the patient alive whilst you make a diagnosis and and deliver definitive treatment. Um, And of course, everybody's aware of the traditional approach to making a diagnosis. That is that you take an an extensive and exhaustive history, if you like. You fully examine the patient. uh, You produce a diagnosis, a differential, and then you organize investigations. But the reality of someone who's acutely unwell is that that traditional approach um, is far too lengthy uh, and will delay necessary treatment. So it has to be abridged and abbreviated appropriately. So you may find, of course, that the patient is in no real position to participate, and then you need to rely on other sources. So, for example, the the bedside nurse, um, other medical staff, family members, what's written in the medical notes all becomes important. But I think there are absolutely key Uh, symptoms that you need to try and elicit from the patient. And and one of these is pain, because not only, of course, will you need to relieve pain, but also it's a cardinal diagnostic uh, symptom. And what about positioning the patient? Because that can be quite difficult in someone who's very unwell. That's absolutely right. And, And you need to really modify the examination to give you as much relevant clinical information as you can, but at the same time keeping the patient safe. I mean, obviously, it would be very undesirable to start sitting patients who are grossly hypotensive 
uh, into a very uh, upright position to listen to their chest. Um, it may be more appropriate, for example, to look at the most recent chest x-ray and examine blood gases. Okay, you've just mentioned blood gases. What other bedside investigations or investigations uh, should one order at this very early stage? Well, I think, as always, investigations will be determined by what, at that point, your diagnosis and differential diagnosis is. But I think in broad brush, there are a few things we need to consider. Firstly, if, for example, you think imaging is going to be crucial to, to making a diagnosis, you have to make sure that that imaging is carried out safely. So, for example, if you, you're worried about the possibility of a large PE, you need to consider how you're going to safely facilitate the CT pulmonary angiogram or ventilation perfusion scanner. And, and that will require expert help and, uh, and experts to help transfer the patient safely. I think bedside investigations, by and large, are, are around simple blood tests and full blood count urea and electrolytes are often very useful but one test in particular can be very informative and that's that's the blood lactate uh, and there's been a number of studies actually which have shown that an elevated uh, lactate perhaps in excess of five millimoles per liter or so is a very good and reliable indicator of the severity of illness so i, I would suggest always when you're taking a blood gas to to always ask for a blood lactate uh, as well and of course blood glucose levels and blood cultures often have a role? Uh, absolutely. I mean, particularly if you're worried about the level of consciousness, um, then checking the blood glucose is very important. And, and sepsis is such an insidious and prevalent uh, illness that uh, blood cultures that uh, almost always be taken in, in, in seriously ill uh, patients. Now, the degree of consultant cover is uh, a vexed issue for many people. Um, when do we call in help? Yeah, it's a very good question. I, I think um, it may be almost immediately apparent when you arrive at the bedside that a patient is moribund. So, for example, they may be deeply unconscious or clearly an extremist struggling to breathe or with grossly abnormal hemodynamics. I don't think a junior could ever be criticised uh, for calling the arrest team at that juncture. It does seem curious, does it not, that we still have doctors um, who are only available to run to the bedside of patients when they are, in fact, uh, have arrested or are, in fact, dead. You know, it would be far better, perhaps, to rebrand the arrest team as a, as a rapid response team. If it's not instantly apparent that the patient is moribund, then I think an assessment along the lines that we've been discussing should be conducted so that you can then present a, a more coherent uh, diagnosis and differential diagnosis uh, to a senior colleague for, for their consideration and assessment. And of course, at this stage, sometimes an intensive care referral uh, is the most appropriate thing. Uh, absolutely. And there's been, in the UK at least, advice from NICE and indeed from NCPOD suggesting that that sort of referral um, should be happening at the consultant level anyway. Um, so, as a junior doctor, I think it's never wrong to, to alert uh, consultants to these patients. And as I say, the, the advice from um, bodies such as NICE suggests that the conversation around referral should, by and large, be between consultants from the ward and the consultant in the intensive care unit. Now, following that, there'll be other interventions that the junior doctor 
uh, may be involved in, such as around ventilation, IV antibiotics, um, intravenous fluids uh, or blood transfusion, as well as, as, other, um, as other issues. Um, but the, the doctor's, the junior doctor's role doesn't just end there, does it? No, absolutely not. Um, the importance of what, what are seen to be relatively simple interventions cannot be overstated. I mean, applying oxygen to uh, an appropriate level of oxygen to an acutely hypoxemic patient is self-evidently life-saving. Uh, applying intravenous fluid to a grossly hypovolemic patient, the same, a potentially life-saving intervention. One of the things that um, juniors should be aware of is that even though um, treatments are prescribed and even though they're planned for in medical admission notes, they don't always happen. So simple things like checking to see that antibiotics have actually been administered is incredibly important. I think, too, it's worth uh, the, the junior doctor, doctor taking a few moments to reconsider the original diagnosis. Sometimes patients who have pre-existing disease, such as COPD, inevitably their respiratory illness is attributed to an infective exacerbation of that problem. But of course, there's a substantial differential diagnosis. So some thought should be given sometimes to whether or not the admitting diagnosis or the original diagnosis was, was correct. I think then the junior doctor is in, is in a great position to be communicating information, both to uh, other junior doctors and colleagues, but also, of course, to the family and the patient about what's happening, what, what illnesses are being considered, why certain therapies are being started, and where the patient uh, may or may not be transferred to, for example, to the intensive care unit. Yes, that's an important point to make, given how traumatic an experience it can be for um, family and friends of the patient, and, and uh, it's often something that's so easily overlooked. Um, Paul, is there anything else you would like to say? I think we've covered a lot in this um, short interview. Uh, we, we, we have covered a lot. Really, I think there are potentially better times ahead for, the, for these patients. As I say, historically, they've suboptimally managed a group of patients. But I think now the message is well and truly out there. Um, and I think training generally has shown signs of improvement. I think the recognition by the Royal College of Physicians of the need for a standardized uh, early warning score system and a standardized rapid response system is also encouraging. I think there are big issues to be tackled, particularly um, the involvement of senior clinicians, particularly after hours. But I think, by and large, the situation now is better uh, than it had, has been historically, but clearly there's still you know, a, a lot of work to be done. Yes, and, and one shouldn't forget, too, that the learning doesn't stop once you've handed over the patient to the ICU team. I think that's a very, very um, perceptive observation. I, I think all too often uh, intensive care is seen as a black box uh, for a junior doctor where a patient disappears from their ward care and they either uh, die within the intensive care unit or appear sometime uh, very much later. And I would advise junior colleagues that it's almost always worth investing the time to, to follow a patient's progress within the ICU. And by doing that, they'll get a far better grasp of what sort of therapies are required 
and indeed what sort of patients should be referred to the intensive care unit. And they will build on the experience uh, that they, they need to have to manage these patients properly. Paul, thanks for this very useful advice on how to manage the acutely ill patient as a junior doctor. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be back looking at preeclampsia, why it's easily missed. Also, obesity. Is it in your genes or is it in the environment? Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.